We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com BE. E. Welcome to Resilient Schools. This is the podcast where we help you make your school resilient, which means that you have the ability to overcome anything that happens in your school. And today I'm excited to have Rebecca Lewis Pancrantz on the program. She was on a previous episode of Resilient Schools, which is episode 18, which I definitely suggest you go listen to because we talked about discipline versus punishment and some powerful foundational shifts in my thinking from that episode. So that's resilientschools.com slash one eight. Go check that out for sure. Um, so she works with communities and schools across the United States to uh, truly solve poverty and heal trauma. And we're going to talk quite a bit about that today. And what she does, she helps brilliant and caring leaders create sustainable ecosystems of resilience through building better relationships. Um, she herself was in poverty and worked herself out of the trailer park in 2011 with three young sons. And uh, she joined a project to help her get out of that situation and now understands and helps others do that as well. Rebecca, welcome back to Resilient Schools. Thank you for being here. I am super blessed, Jethro, to be here. So we are doing this as part of a way of kicking off the Bridging to Resilience conference that is happening in Wichita, Kansas, this November 6th through 8th. If you're listening to this show, you should definitely be attending this conference as well because it deals with real people solving real problems. And we're going to talk about that here in a minute as well. So that is sdac.org. There's a link in the show notes as well. sdac.org slash B2R23. And Rebecca, what should people look forward to from our conversation today? Jethro, it is always a great pleasure to just sit and, and discuss possibilities and ideas, but really it's this understanding that when we invite some of the folks to the table who are experiencing the issues we are trying to solve, we can get there much faster and it is more meaningful. And so really just kind of helping educators and people that work with humans that might be struggling with certain plights to understand 
the people that are experiencing the issues you're trying to solve. So in schools, we often say at-risk parents, right? They need to be at the table as collaborators and solution creators, right? And so that is really what Bridging to Resilience is about. But there's a huge backstory to all of that about how powerful that concept is. And so we'll have parents there um, who are experiencing poverty to help guide and lead us, administrators, educators, thought leaders, um, tons of strategies and resources, and also students on stage sharing with us, hey, what works, what doesn't, and watching the power of them become resilient through the approaches that educators are using. And so kids with tough stories coming up and saying, this isn't my story anymore. I'm not going to accept that. Right. And so it's going to be a great episode. Yeah, for sure. I think one of the big takeaways for me is hearing some of your stories of what's happened in the past and, and how these people really change minds about what educators perceive about them and their situation. That to me is, is really powerful. So again, uh, Rebecca, thank you. Also the Bridging to Resilience Conference, sdac.org slash B2R23. Definitely got to go check that out. And we'll get to our interview with Rebecca here in just a moment. Want to know one of my biggest frustrations with EdTech? Having too many tools and not enough time to use them right. They require too much training and it takes too much effort to implement it effectively. That's why it makes such a difference that IXL can do the job of dozens of individual tools. So I have everything I need for instruction and assessment in one place. IXL is research proven to accelerate achievement. Studies across 45 states show that IXL schools outperform non-IXL schools on state assessments and independent research from Johns Hopkins University verifies that IXL meets ESSA Tier 1 standards. With those results combined with IXL's teacher-friendly reputation, what more could you ask for? I'm sure you want to increase achievement for all students. Find out how IXL can help. Visit IXL.com BE for a demo. That's IXL.com BE. All right, so Rebecca, you talked about this idea of building solutions for people who are facing the problems while they're right there with you. Tell me about that idea and what that looks like and how you actually do that. You know, Jethro, I, I just imagine this world where it's common practice, it's best practice that when we have a group of people that are going through something and you find the people that want to create solutions for that, that were like, oh, the best people to go to for the solutions are the people that are experiencing the issue. And I think so often we have so many people that want to create change, but there's this hesitation to actually go to the folks in the middle of the struggle and say, what do you guys need? What do you think needs to happen here? Like we're missing this gold mine of, I, I think, opportunity to really create meaningful solutions and also tap into the internal resources that lie within individuals. You know, so where I experienced this as a person is, you know, as a single mom in the trailer park and I bump up against this poverty project. And the first night I got there, they were like, we see families struggling in our community. And we think that the root cause of that struggle is poverty and we want to solve it. And we need people like you 
who are living it to tell us what to do and to tell us what you need. And we were all just kind of, we just sat there, me and about eight other parents in a room. And we were just kind of like, you mean you want to know what we think? And they invited us to the table, not just as informers, right? But also as solution creators. And the collaborations that I've seen generated since then, it's some powerful stuff. And so, you know, an example of that, in that project, we would look at what we called big view topics to solve. Like what barriers are people that are experiencing poverty bumping up against in the community? Not just the people that were in the project, but like all people. And the families talked about healthcare and health access. And they said, our kids have to go 30 miles in any direction just to go see a primary care physician. The types of insurances that we have, there's no providers here in our town. And they said, and so we usually wait until after five o'clock to go to the emergency room to take our kids in for an antibiotic or whatever, because we're single moms and driving 30 minutes, setting appointments. So kids weren't getting their um, well child checkup. They weren't getting. And so a lot of medical professionals got around a table with us and we started this process. And you know, it was fascinating because we had families that were in that planning committee about, okay, how do we solve this? And at one point, all the middle-class people were talking about, well, we don't have an, a, what do you call it? The place where you go, urgent care. Urgent we don't care, have yeah. an urgent care in our town. And they all got like super excited about that. And the couple that was there to represent the family said, that's still not going to help us. And all the other people in the room, the middle-class people were like, oh yeah, let's get back on point. Right. And out of that collaboration, we were able to bring a, we, we created the first federally qualified health clinic satellite in the state of Kansas. So FQHCs are complicated and they're difficult and they take about 20 years to actually birth and get cooking, but we created a satellite. And so now we have access to healthcare in our town of 14,000 people. So that's an example of when you've got people in the room, they keep you on your true north. They'll tell you what'll work and what won't work. And they are the solution creators. So why do you think we don't go to them more often? I mean, this is an issue like we want to make schools better. We right. don't ask kids how to make right. it better. We don't ask teachers how to make it better. What, what prevents us from doing that? I think there's a lot of different barriers, but one is that I don't think that we have mainstreamed this idea, right? Like, I think it's a lot of times people just don't think about it, right? They see an issue and, you know, so God bless me. I'm going to need lots of prayers, Jethro, but I'm running for school board, right? Like oh, in my day. <laughs> one of the questions was, what do we do about teacher retention? And my, my answer was, well, why don't we ask the teachers what's working and what's not working? They're going to be the ones who really guide us in, I mean, like, and so when we ask about why don't we, I think sometimes when you're talking about at-risk populations, there's fear, there's fear to be in the room together. There's fear to burden people. There's fear of folks not understanding you know, Robert's rule of order. There's, there's all of these different little kind of nuances that I think prevent people from just going, let's just get in the room and sit down and have conversations. Right. Yeah. And you know, that, that seems like a, a pretty easy thing to do, but the people who are affected by the decisions are not always often the ones who are making the final say on the decisions. And the school board is a good example of that. In some situations, it's even inappropriate for the school board to talk directly to teachers, not in a public forum and to, it can be, we have systems and structures in place that sometimes prevent that from happening. So 
talking about bridging to resilience, specifically the conference that, that ESTAC puts on, how does that come to be where you may not have decision makers in the room, or you may not have those impacted in the room, or you may have them all in the room. And how do you, how do you manage that in a conference like that? Yeah, Jethro. So bridging to resilience is like one of the most, I think, meaningful experiences that I get to be a part of. I get to be a part of a lot of cool experience, but, but this was kind of like the birth of this idea of, okay, let's have a conference where the people that we're actually meeting about and trying to find answers to work, like, why don't we have them there? And so I think when we talk about trauma and trauma-informed and resilience, I mean, we just need to understand that that doesn't live in a certain neighborhood and that doesn't live in a certain town and it's not a certain race or a certain income, right? That is a story about all of us. But poverty, which is also part of Bridging to Resilience, that is something that's, that a group of people is experiencing. And so, and I always tell people, you know, poverty doesn't mean abuse and neglect. Poverty does mean toxic stress, right? When you've got a lot of survival mode happening in your life, your stress response system is just overactivated by nature. So we designed that conference to have parents who are experiencing poverty at the conference on stage in a panel sharing like, hey, this is what's been really helpful for me. Here's some of the things that happen in school on a daily basis that really throw us into survival mode. Here's teachers that when they saw me, they made this huge impact. Here's the way that our family has experienced these demands. And so at every year after that parent panel, we have tons of responses that are like, I've been doing this. I've been in the public education arena for 25 years and I have never, right? And so it's this really poignant way for folks to speak and share and People that go to Bridging to Resilience, they walk out of there and they're like, I have those moms in my districts. I know that dad, right? I don't know that particular dad, but we all see our, we see the people we're surrounded with when we go through those experiences, right? And they're like, that panel changed me. I will never be the same educator. And then we also have these learning centers where kids find themselves not being able to be successful in a traditional school setting. So they end up in a learning center, right? Kids end up in our centers and kids are also on stage talking about, you know, who built my resilience? What's it like to be inside of a resilience-based school? Um, how has this changed for me? And they talk about their future, Jethro. And you know, you've worked with a lot of kids who can't see past today. And when you watch a student get up there in front of three or 400 people and talk about, here's where I was, here's what happened and here's where I want to go next. Like, you know, that they're starting to see, right. They're starting to see a vision for their life. We also do, uh, we call it people of resilience. It's like a human library, right. Um, and we've got people that write their stories out and they kind of, you can kind of check them out when we do that activity and you can go and sit with someone and just listen. Right. And we've had tons of different topics in that experience that, Put a face and a heart to some of the big challenges that we see in society and, and really some of the things that our kids are experiencing that it feels like we're just kind of feeling our way in the dark with a lot of the things that our students are dealing with. And you sit with these kids and they're like, here's what happened and here's what made a difference for me and here's what I need from you, right? And you can ask questions. And so 
anyways, I get super excited. And then of course we have educators and we've got administrators and we've got public health there and we have poverty projects and how to do that there. And so it's this host of how do we all get better together and realize that our greatest asset is each other. Let's talk about flex time in schools. If you've been listening for a long time, you know how important I think this is. It gives us more time for personalized learning, increasing choice and agency for students, and the increased enrollment that comes with it, dedicated time for intervention and enrichment. And overall, as school leaders, it gives us and our faculty more tools to increase academic achievement. But the implementation and management of flex time can be so tough. Tricky logistics and a lack of clear accountability systems can prevent teachers from buying in and can hold us back from ensuring students make good use of their time. I'm pleased to share that MyFlex Learning provides a solution to these challenges and more. MyFlex Learning helps you create and manage flexible time for any purpose. And with seamless SIS integration, a student locator, flexible daily rostering, and an intuitive mobile app, it eliminates the common challenges of implementation and management. Want to see for yourself? Visit myflexlearning.com b to learn more about it and receive $500 off the first year of use. That's myflexlearning.com be. Yeah, I, our greatest asset really is each other and being able to help people see stories in a different light, like going back to those parent panels and how that helps people see what other people are experiencing, even though you may see it yourself on a day-to-day -day basis, the, the people that you see in your work, it's different when you hear them speaking in a situation where they're not typically uh, given the opportunity to speak. And I just, I think that's incredibly powerful. We, we did this thing at one of my schools where we would go and visit the home of every student before school started. Mm -hmm. And, and the reason why we did that was to show the families that we were willing to leave where we were and go visit them and tell them that we care about them enough to leave our school and, and go to them. And this I thought was incredibly powerful and so valuable for those families to see that we care about them. And what was really interesting is that teachers came back from that saying things like, I did not understand where my kids really lived in the city, in their homes. I didn't understand that like there's four families living in that same house and three of the students that I'm going to have this year are all coming from that house. And we had to work really hard to not make it about that because mm -hmm. we wanted to see these families as real people, not, we didn't want to go and like say, oh, life is so hard for them. We better like pay attention. We wanted them to know we really care about you. And it was really difficult to not make it about seeing where they lived and then judging them for that. Mm -hmm. And so how do you find that balance of having people share their stories without mm -hmm. judging them for where they're at? And I, I struggled with this greatly with my teachers that they were like, you know, totally focused on the wrong things. We're, we're there to tell them we love them. That's it. Like we don't have, we don't need any judgment that doesn't help us. How do you, how do you balance that so that people aren't 
judging others for decisions they've made or things that got them to there to that point or or anything like that how do how do you make that work that's a really powerful question you know and so far i think this is our 6th year of doing this conference and so far what i've seen happen is just the opposite it's like people's stories and their authenticity and their vulnerability you just you just feel the judgment drop in the room and you can feel people's paradigms just like tipping over the one thing that i have noticed that's been more an, an undesired effect of the process is that i think that a lot of cuz we oftentimes have educators stand up and we do q and a like the families have been prepped and you know edu- and they know they can they don't have to answer anything they don't want to but people in the audience start asking questions. And what I noticed Jethro is it's like all of a sudden there's this almost shame or guilt that people in the audience are experiencing because they didn't know. Yeah. And so you just watch that all kind of start to come undone. And I've seen you know women and dads, moms and dads on that parent panel, like caring for a person that's going through this, moment of, oh my gosh, I didn't know. And I'm so sorry. And like, I just need to stand up and say that to you right now, even though you're not the mom or the dad, right? Like, and you watch these moms and dads on the panel, start caring for these people in the audience and saying, we're okay. We're a lot tougher than you think we are. Right. But we just want to be seen and heard and valued. And we want you to know that we love our kids. Like poverty is hard. And most of the families that we're working with also are, they've experienced a lot of different difficulty and adversity and they have, you know, they understand about ACEs and resilience and, and how to do that kind of work with their kids. And so, so I haven't seen, I just, out of six years, I don't remember ever getting feedback either anecdotally or through um, written response that led me to believe that the magic didn't happen for someone that was in the audience. So I think it's a really powerful experience, right? Um, So, yeah. And the families that come, you know, we don't try and pick the right families. We don't try and put cleaned up versions of people up there. You know, these are real moms and dads that it's mostly moms because dads have a harder time getting off work, as you already know, like, but it's mostly moms, mostly single moms. And they're they're experiencing life right now. I mean, like, you know, we had one little guy that came last year with his mom because he was just too overstimulated to be left with caregivers that weren't his mom or to be at school. Like, and we had all these educators that were wrapping around this kid that had some different, he was having different experiences at this big conference. And you just saw people doing trauma-informed strategies with this kid. And like, it was so cool, right? And this mom got to come with a kid that, she's pretty isolated in her life because of some of the challenges that they have. And she got to come to a big fancy hotel in Kansas city with her son and have 400 people wrap around her kid and not judge her. Like, and so then when he was a second grader, right? Like he wasn't a part of the conference, but he was. So that was fantastic. Yeah. And the kids, but the other thing that I'll say, that's really like, I think also very powerful is we bring these, 10 kids, 10 students that want to come and want to be a part of this. We bring these six parents. We also, due to sponsorship and just our commitment to families, um, we also have a very reduced cost for other families that just want to come that are in poverty, right? And they go through the conference and at the end, they're like, 
educators are amazing people because there's judgment on both sides. There's judgment, which is really fear, right? And so you watch these families get an entirely new perspective too, and the commitment that they have to go back and be more intentional about building relationships with their educators. That's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that is. I, you brought up something a few minutes ago that I just want to circle back to. And it's this idea that the parents are really doing the best they can with what they've got. And this is a a core belief of mine that it is, it is really the parents' responsibility to raise their children and the state, other agencies, other people step in to support them. And one of the challenges that I see is that educators, because they've been trained and they have all this knowledge and, and experience and education, uh, they sometimes get on a little bit of a high horse about, I know, I know what you need to do to quote unquote, fix your child or Mm -hmm. raise them right. And what parents really need are partners in that they don't need Uh, people saying this is what you should do. They don't need judgment or any of that kind of stuff. What would be, what's your perspective on that? Do you think I'm off base? Mm -hmm. You think that's in line? What are your thoughts and then advice to someone who's, who's maybe experiencing some of that judgment and and not being as compassionate as they should? Well, I think that we've made a lot of strides in talking about race in our country. Do we have a long ways to go? Absolutely. Right. Um, But our younger generation that's coming up, like they're just more awake and open to a lot of different, I guess, belief systems that we've needed for so long. But Americans don't really like to talk about class, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot of pain in that conversation. And I don't think we realize just how truly segregated we are by economic class. And so I think a lot of times what's happening, Jethro, is people are alarmed if they've been raised in a lower middle class, middle middle class, upper middle class kind of upbringing. They don't understand that the way that they were raised is actually a culture. Yeah. So when they're seeing things that are very abnormal to the culture that because because you know that that the middle class culture is kind of the status quo right like these are the the social norms of most of our systems of most of the people that run the systems and so it's really difficult to understand that you are experiencing a culture right and now you're gonna like who knows if i cause trouble with this next statement but i'm not a researcher i fought my way through college took me 10 years to get a bachelor's degree. And so I am certainly not the most educated person on the planet, but I've looked at some different people that study poverty and they're like, poverty doesn't have a culture. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like we certainly have a culture. And, you know, so I don't think that we do enough. I don't think we have enough dialogue or conversation with our young educators to help them understand that you're going to see things that make you super uncomfortable and it doesn't mean they're wrong. Yeah. Wow. Right. And so helping people to kind of realize that the culture of poverty. And so whether you love Ruby Payne or hate her, I adore her. I've noticed a lot of middle-class people have struggles with her, but you know, when I read her book, a framework for understanding generational poverty went through curriculum around her. I was like, oh my gosh, this is what's going on. And she really helped me to kind of understand people that weren't like me and to also understand these 
kind of hidden rules is what Ruby Payne talked about that I was bumping up against inside of a university and a four-year experience and a welfare system. Like I had no idea. It just felt very painful because when I would tell them what was going on in my life and why I was making the decisions I was making, I was getting a lot of backlash from these helpers, right? Because they were judging me. And in my culture, that stuff makes sense. In someone else's culture, it looks asinine, right? And the reality is, is that behaviors that you have or the hidden rules that you use don't put you in an economic class. They develop from the environment that you live in. And so I don't believe that poverty is a mindset, Jethro. I, I mean, that almost hurts my heart when I hear people say that. But poverty conditions you, just like middle-class conditions you, just like wealth conditions you. And in that conditioning, there's certain patterns that get developed of behavior. And what if we truly understood each other's patterns of, of behavior instead of thinking that's right or that's wrong? And so when you ask about educators that might be stuck in some of that, I, it always comes from a place of love. I've never met an educator who wanted to be judgmental or cause harm to a family or a student. And most of it comes from a lack of understanding or a lack of awareness. And so the, the best remedy for that is to really try and get to know your kid's parents on a human level and talk about the things that are universal for all of us. What are your dreams for your kid? What are your fears right now? What do you wish that I understood that I might not understand? And what would be helpful from you, right? Or what do you need from me? I mean, I think those are some really important questions that if we start there and you start listening to people and you're like, oh my gosh, even though we have these different behaviors and different cultures, we're all really want the same thing. Strong families, safe neighborhoods, productive communities, and enriched lives and futures. Yeah. I'm so glad you you brought up that last piece, especially because I, I won't go into the whole story here, but there was a, a former gangbanger Hispanic woman who was a grandma at my school. And she just thought because I was white and a male and not in poverty myself, I mean, she just, we butted heads like crazy. And because my principal, I was the assistant principal, the principal was Hispanic as well, uh, but was not from poverty or from a gang background, this woman just could not even tolerate her. And, and it was so fascinating because she thought that I was basically the devil and hated everything that I did. And when I started, and by the time I left, she cried and gave me a hug when she found out that I was leaving the school um, because I worked really, really hard to see her as a human, as a fellow human. And to understand that she and I both wanted what was best for her, for her grandsons, who she was raising because her daughter was in jail, uh, who was their mom. And like, this woman was amazing and she loved her grandboys so much. It was just crazy. And everything that she did that looked like it was aggressive and fighting and all of that was all because she wanted what was best for her boys and didn't think they were going to get a fair shake and you know that that just opened my eyes to this woman who would be very easy to judge and very easy for me to say she doesn't know what she's doing i can fix all of this i can tell her what she needs to do i i just am so grateful she came into my life at that time because she really taught me that 
behind all of the aggression, all of the disrespect, quote unquote, that she showed me uh, was really just a, a woman who loved her grandkids and wanted them to have a better life. And once she understood that I wanted that for her kids also, then things changed. And she was on my side. I was on, your on her team. side. On the yeah. same team. You know? Exactly. Yeah. And, and it was a, it was a beautiful thing. So I, I just really appreciate you bringing that up because I've, I've seen that in my own life and how powerful that can be. So, mm -hmm. uh, so thank you. So uh, in closing, I've said before, and I'll say again, if you're listening to this podcast, you need to be at Bridging to Resilience. What else would you add to that? You know, I think Jethro, every time we do this, people walk away changed. And the, the thing I would say is that Bridging to Resilience isn't just another conference. And I'm, I conferences are a great place to go and get recharged and to get new ideas and um, new strategies. But Bridging to Resilience is like, I don't, I just wish I had better words to describe. Like it's, it's almost like a, a revival, right? Like, I mean, people come together and there's just so much that happens inside of our souls there. And kids walk away changed, families walk away changed, professionals walk away changed. And truly, I think this is hard work. Education in general is hard work, but once your eyes are open to some of the undercurrents of what's happening in our world and in your classroom and in your school and in your town, it gets a heavy burden. And sometimes people that do the work that you and I do, Jethro, when you talk to them in schools, they feel very isolated and they feel very misunderstood. So Bridging to Resilience is a place for people who need to come and get some love from the community that that truly gets it. It's also a place for people. I always tell administrators, they're like, I have the same four teachers that want to go this year because it was so impactful to them. And I'm like, yeah, but what about the three teachers that truly do not understand this paradigm? Yeah, yeah. And them to Bridging to Resilience, and I promise they will leave changed. And so you know, just kind of open up, like, who should go? Well, everybody should go. But if you have to make decisions, I always say send a couple that are on fire for this and send a couple that are very, very unsure. Yeah. I think that's great advice. And having that opportunity to hear real stories from real people who are really going through some through some tough stuff is an incredibly powerful thing. So. Definitely, uh, if you're listening to this, go register sdac, e -S -S -D -A -C -K org slash B2R23. I always mess that up. B2R, you got yeah. it. B2R23, go there, register, you will not regret it. And uh, this is, I'm really excited about this conference. Looking forward to being there myself and, and sharing more great stuff from this conference with other people through this podcast as well. So Rebecca, thank you again for being part of Resilient Schools. Jethro, thanks for being a part of our family now. Yeah, I'm excited. Edited by Gage Sanderson. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, Check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's MyFlexLearning.com BE. 
Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE.